Seems like a month since the class has been together. I don't, uh, I was three months. Seems like I, I ought to start at the beginning again if that first Thessalonians, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll just sally forth and uh, try to cover uh, the second chapter today. So if you'd be opening your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. And by way of review, uh, when we looked at chapter 1, uh, we looked at Paul talking to the church at Thessalonica and what he saw as the experience of others who had seen the church, who had seen what this congregation uh, had done. He gives them a salutation at the first, and you remember in the, in the first verse of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he does not use the word apostle. Um, he saves that for churches that have serious issues, like the church at Corinth, like the church at uh, Galatia. Um, he uses that term. He does not use the term here. Um, he, he, they're, a fellow, they're fellow workers together. He's thankful for this church. He notices that there are others who have talked about this church, about their faith. The Christians in this, in this, uh, in this Roman uh, city of Thessalonica, their faith, their fidelity, the example that they are to, uh, to everyone around them. He uses the term brothers some 20 times in these, two, uh, in these two books that he writes to the church at Thessalonica. We remember that this is one of the earliest, earliest if not the first, gospel uh, epistle or the first epistle that Paul writes. It's the earliest, this is the earliest one he writes. He also talks extensively about predestination. He talks about being uh, about uh, being chosen from the beginning of time, and we talked about how uh, that error of predestination has worked its way into uh, Calvinism and worked its way into uh, uh, denominational churches today. So overall, in chapter 1, Paul talks about the experience of the church of Thessalonica through the eyes of others. So in chapter 2, he switches gears, and he switches gears in the, first, in the very first verse of chapter 2, talking about looking at the experience through their eyes, through the church at Thessalonica's eyes. So he's not looking uh, at those outwardly looking at the church. Now he's looking inwardly at the church themselves through their experiences. For you yourselves know, there's the, there's the lead-in to, the to the whole experience that he's going to talk about in this chapter. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. And so here he's talking about um, you know, and we have to again go back to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the beginning or the history book of the church, and it talks about the establishment of all the churches. So if you want to know where the church at Corinth began, you want to know where the church at Galatia began, or the book of Galatians, the book of Thessal- Thessalonians, this is the church at Thessalonica. So we'd have to go back to Acts 17, which is where they go after they were so ill-treated at where? Where were, they, where were they ill-treated that they left and went to Thessalonica? At Philippi. So when he writes the church at Philippi, the book of Philippians, the joy of Christianity is what the, is what the, the title of that is, he talks about the fact that <clears throat> in Acts 17, how they came to Thessalonica, how they established that church, how they came to be there. What are the circumstances behind how this church was formed, how this church came to be? 
And if we go back to Acts 16, he's going to talk about that in just a, a couple of verses. So he said, our coming to you was not in vain. When we came there, we came to preach the gospel. We came to bring Christ to the Jews and the Gentiles that are uh, at Thessalonica. He preached in the synagogue for three consecutive weeks. And we know, that be, we know that by reading Acts 16, or Acts 17, which is where the church was formed. So he says in verse 2, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, what's he talking about there? What's he talking about there? He's talking about Acts 16. So in, the note, in your notes, if you're writing that in verse 2, you want to put Acts 16, verses 11 through 24. This is where they were beaten. They were thrown into prison. Paul and Silas, one of the three that's here in, in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas were doing what at midnight? Singing and praying. And we talk about we talked about last week how that we as Christians today don't appreciate or don't understand or don't know what it's like to endure physical persecution. Now the question arises from that: Are we persecuted today as Christians? Are we persecuted today as Christians? Not like they were, but that doesn't answer the question. Are we persecuted today as Christians? The Bible says all who are godly in Christ Jesus, what? Shall suffer persecution. So what kind of persecution? I, I, I don't think any of you have been thrown into jail. I don't think any of you have been beaten. How are we persecuted today? Okay. You try to talk to someone about Jesus, what do they do? Sneer, ridicule, call you a flat earther. How can you believe that book of fairy tales? Now, that's not the kind of persecution that they went through in the first century. They were literally dying for Christ. But we are persecuted today. What are some other ways that we're persecuted today? The devil hasn't gone away. The devil is still here. He's still active. And we'll get to that. We'll talk about the hindrance of Satan here toward the end of the chapter. What are we talking about when we talk about persecution today? How are we persecuted today? Sure, there are still people that are being physically persecuted, but if you think that you, if you're a faithful Christian today, that you're not being persecuted, you're, you may be a little naive. Okay? Okay. In the world, but not of the world. So that's going to engender persecution right there. So what are some of the ways that we're persecuted? Maybe my job calls for me to be gone every Sunday. Is that persecution of a sort? You're having to make a decision between your job and coming to church. Now, sometimes that can't be helped. But many times it can be. What about this, what about this, this, this stuff that I have in my wallet, this green stuff that I use to buy things. Can that be persecution? If I'm thinking more about worldliness, if I'm thinking more about the world than I am about the things, those higher things that I need to be thinking about, those can cause persecution to follow me. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So there are still things in this world today that we are persecuted because of the decisions that we make. The decision you make to follow Jesus will call on you to be ridiculed, will, call, will be called on you to be maybe 
ostracized from certain things. You can't you you can't belong to this group. You we have no we have no business being in those places. We have no business doing those kind of things. And this is why these people were being literally persecuted. But when you leave these when you leave this cloistered hall auditorium today and you go out through those doors, you're going out into a world that hates you. They may tolerate you. They may put up with you. But when push comes to shove, they don't like you. They don't like the way you live if you're living for Christ. You make decisions that they don't even think about making. Well, I don't go to church on Sunday. I, I believe I can go out and I, I believe I can go out and be with God in the great outdoors. I'm, so I'm going to go hunting or I'm going to go fishing on Sundays. Decisions. Decisions you have to make every day. When you're tempted to make a decision, the devil is standing in the fork of the fork of that road, and he's helping you make. He's hoping that you make the wrong decision. And so, temptation, persecution, still exists today. It just exists in many different formats. The entertainment that you decide that you're going to invite into your home or your family. The devil and his ways. He walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Decisions that you make. But you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we'd suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. See, the fact that they were deterred from preaching didn't stop the preaching of the word. They pressed on. They were bold. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it of deceit. Now, Paul is going to begin here in chapter uh, in chapter 2, and he's going to go run down through uh, verse 6, through the end of verse 6. And he's going to talk about some things that are the defenses of his preaching. But I think on a larger level... These things need to be a part of Lehman Avenue's defense of the gospel, defense of the word. So if we think about chapter 1, he talked about what other people say or what other people are saying about the church at Thessalonica. Do we hear good things from others about Lehman Avenue? We sure do. We sure do. Everywhere you go, most places, churches of Christ know about Lehman Avenue. I worshiped at a church in uh, Pikeville several years ago, right before the pandemic. They knew about us. Churches of Christ know about other churches of Christ who are doing good things. Now, that is not, that is not to puff any of us up or to say, well... We've reached that level. We're, we've, attained, we've attained everything we want to attain. Nothing to be done. Just come on to church when you want to, and then you stay home if you want to. It doesn't matter. It still matters. There's still much work to do. When the world has been turned over, turned upside down, when the world has been turned upside down for Christ, and every person on this globe is a member of the church, that may be the time to stop or to slow down. But until then... There's much work to do. And so if we can apply the first chapter of Thessalonians to Lehman Avenue, that what others say about us outside 
then what can we do to look at ourselves from the inside, which is what Paul is doing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So let's look at some of these things that we could apply to ourselves. For our exhortation, verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error. Do we preach the gospel? Are we consistent in teaching divine truth? Are the men who stand in the pulpit, whether they're regular preachers or the Wednesday night devotional person or whomever gets up in front of you in a class, are they teaching the word? Are they teaching divine, are they teaching divine truth with no error? Look at Romans 1 verse 27. I thought I had that in my notes, but I, I didn't make a note to write that down. Romans 1 verse 27. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and recovering in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. Romans 1, verse 27. Do we do the things? Do we do the things that are consistent with divine truth? Do we teach the things that God wants us to teach? Not the words of men, but the words of who? The words of God. So that's the first thing that Paul talks about with them. So the exhortation did not come from error. And it did not come from uncleanness. That's the second thing. So there's no room in the preaching of the gospel. There's no room in Christians' lives for worldliness. There's no room in the church for uncleanness. And that's the, it's the same term. If you look at the, the, you look at the term he uses for uncleanness, it's that worldliness. And a lot of denominational churches, and to our shame, some churches of Christ, have brought worldliness into the church. But if you, if you want some other times when Paul talks about this, he talks about this in Romans 1, verse 24. He talks about this in Galatians 5, verse 19, this worldliness, this uncleanness. And he talks about it in Colossians 3, verse 5. So our exhortation did not come from error, or it did not come from uncleanness. Nor was it in what? Was it in deceit? Was it in deceit? There's no deception. What does that mean? There wasn't a gospel preached that would get Paul some worldly gain. There's no deceit. God approved, as we will see here in just a minute, we, we see that God approves or approved of what Paul was doing. He approved of the preaching that he was, uh, that he was, that he was doing. And so there's no, there's no element of gain. So there's no error being taught. There's no uncleanness, no worldliness being taught. And there's no deceit. We're not telling you something. Teachers are not telling you something. Preachers are not preaching something that's going to get them something. By telling you, you need to do this. But there are denominations today that are doing that very thing. Are they not? When you call our helpline, when you call our 1-800 number to give a gift, those kind of things are not so. And Paul talks about that in a little more detail here in just a minute. That's another way. Yes, that's another way. Yeah. And we see time after time where these types of beliefs are used to line the preacher's pockets. You've seen, certainly you've probably seen it on the news where, you know, the preacher was, he was just aghast because he asked the congregation to buy him a jet airplane. Deceit. It cannot be. It cannot be within the walls of a congregation like Lehman Avenue. But now he turns from the negative, 
Now he turns to the positive. So every time Paul gives you a negative, he's going to also provide you with a positive. And the positive is, but we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not speaking anything that's outside of the pages of this book. Not speaking anything that's outside of what God has entrusted to us, the gospel. Not as pleasing men. So he's faithful. He's faithful to the communication that God has provided him to give. No additions, no deletions. A man who is a man who is plowing a field and turns his head to the left or right is not is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul teaches what God has approved. He's been entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak, not pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time, back to the negatives, for neither at any time did we use flattering words. What does that what does that do to a congregation where someone's always being flattered and buttered up and they're, they're, they're being manipulated in some way to teach something through these flattering words that they're, that they're using or, or they're using flattering words? As you know, so these people are well aware that there are those among them who are teaching these sorts of things. Now, with the uncleanness part, there were, there were preachers that were going around in the first century and they were teaching that... In addition to all these other things that you do, there was some carnal aspect to this. So, you know, you could go up to any of the temples, and there were temple prostitutes there. And that's the way some people worshipped. And so they were trying, some of these preachers in the early first century were trying to introduce this into the church. Just as the Jews were trying to say, okay, you Gentiles, all of us, you Gentiles can become Christians. But what do you got to do to become a Christian? In the Jews' eyes, what did you have to do? Well, you didn't have to become a Jew, but you had to, you had to, you had to do Jewish. You, had to, you still had to worship in the Old Testament fashion. If you weren't circumcised, if you didn't go to the synagogue, if you didn't convert or be a proselyte to the Jewish country, you couldn't be, you, you, in their eyes, you couldn't be a Christian. And Paul says, no, 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 no. No, no, these two, these two things are separate now. And so not with flattering words. As you know, or nor a cloak for covetousness. So, not to please men. Their mission was being judged by God. They talked about that. No flattering words. And no covetousness. What's another word for covetousness? Greed. Greed. Desire for something that is not yours. No Christian. Well, let me preface this by saying... When the lottery started up in, in Florida, when the lottery started in Florida many years ago, the first winner in the Florida lottery was an elder in the church. Should a Christian play the lottery? That's covetousness. Colossians 3 talks about that. It's gain that is not yours. It's not scriptural. I don't play the lottery. Would I like to have won that billion dollars in that lottery that was here a few weeks ago? Well, who wouldn't? But I can't bring myself to do that. That's not, that's not right. So not with covetousness, not with flattering words. God is our witness that we were not doing this for greedy reasons, for greedy uh, motives. We did not have greedy motives. Nor 
were we seeking glory from men, verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. At all these other churches that Paul has preached at, he's not seeking glory. When we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. That's an interesting statement there at the end of verse 6. Might have made demands as apostles of Christ. There's a lot involved in just that last part of that. Not have made demands. What, what would you think, what would you think that, that lend itself to? What's Paul talking about there? Not have made demands. Not have made demands. Maybe, more, maybe something more than praise. Made demands. If I come over here, I'm going to need some support. I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need some money. Yes, ma'am. Okay. So had he asked the Thessalonican church for support before? Yeah. He had asked the Thessalonican church for support before. Um, I don't know if I wrote that. I don't know if I wrote that verse down. But there's a, there's a verse where he says, when we were going around and we weren't, we weren't asking for any support from anybody, the church at Thessalonica sent them money, sent them funds. What would Paul usually do when he went into a congregation to preach while he was there in the town? What would he do? Would, would he just be living off the largesse of the church, you know, give me, give me $1,000 a week or 500 a week, and, you know, and I'll stay here and preach? Well, how, was he, how was he making ends meet? He had to eat. He had to sleep. He had to, he had to find a place where he had to live if he was not maybe living with Christian families. What was he doing? He was tent making. He was tent making. That was his avocation. What is his vocation? church is Christian. Every one of us has an avocation. Teacher. IT pharmacy. Others of you who work. That's your, voca- that's your avocation. What is your vocation? Your vocation is Christian. That's your job. That's your job. What you do to make a living is your avocation. What you do to, to gain eternity is be a Christian. That's your vocation. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. They were consistent. They were consistent. No covetousness, no seeking human glory, no personal gain. Notice at the end of verse 6 what he says about, about Silas and Timothy. What does he call them? Apostles of Christ. Well, hold on now. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait just a second. What does it mean to be an apostle? What did it mean to be an apostle? What did it mean to be an apostle? How many apostles were there? There were 12 apostles. Judas dropped off. Matthias was added in. Paul is an apostle. He calls himself that in 1 Corinthians. He calls himself that in almost every book where there's trouble in the church. He calls himself an apostle of Christ. He is an apostle of Christ, born out of time. He was not one of the original 12. Why is he calling Silas and Timothy, why is he calling them apostles? They're not. What does your translation say? Does it say apostle? Does it say apostle? The Greek word translated there is messenger or a missionary. So as disciples, we're not apostles. Every one of us is a disciple of Christ, right? Every one of us is a disciple Follower of Christ, we're not apostles. We can't heal 
we had to lay hands on people and, and, and do the things that apostles could do. Raise the dead, those kind of things. But he calls them apostles because they're the missionaries. They're the messengers of the gospel to these various places. He uses the same terms in Galatians 1.19. He uses the same term in Acts 14.14. 14, and he uses the same term for messenger or missionaries in 2 Corinthians 8.23. That's how we know what he's saying here about the apostles. The Greek word is the same one. The Greek word is the same one. Okay. So he's calling Silas and Timothy apostles of Christ. Now notice in verse 7... The whole tenor of Paul's message to this congregation changes, but there's the word you know that, that there's a change in there's a change in tense. There's a change in application when he says the word but. But all these things given, all these things given, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Mothers in the audience with children, men in the audience who have wives who are mothers with children. What is the relationship like between a mother and a newborn child? Is there any, is there any correlation to anything other than life than a mother and her newborn child? There's not. The mother with a newborn child is what? Selfless? That infant, it does not, that infant is not born like other infants in other members of the animal kingdom, and we're not animals. Other members of the animal kingdom are born. You ever seen a giraffe been born, be born? Or another animal be born? What do they do immediately? They get up. And they move away. They move along with their mother. Because many times there are predators present. They have, to be, they have to be able to move. What about an infant? Is there anything that you can think of that at birth is more helpless, more needing of a mother's care, a mother's love, and a mother's affection? This is how Paul characterizes his attitude toward the church at Thessalonica, that same relationship that a mother shares with her newborn child with her children she cherishes her children so affectionately longing for you we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives because you had become dear to us how do we treat each other in the church of Christ how do we treat each other at Lehman Avenue is there affection among us? Is there love among us? Is there infighting among us? Is there bickering among us? Is there, is there wrath? Brethren, these things should not be so. The affection that a mother has for an infant child or for a child that she's raising, that she and her husband are raising, that is the kind of love should be among us. So affectionately longing for you. Do you long for coming here during the week? Do you long for being with your brethren? Do you long for being in this church, of, in, in, this, in this ecclesia, this body of Christ? Do you long for it as Paul did? What are you willing to give up for it? 
Are you willing to give up your time, your talent, your opportunities, like Neil was talking about this morning? He was willing to impart to them not only the gospel of God, but he was willing to impart his life. He'd give his life. Greater love hath no man than to give up his life for his friend. Greater love, so affectionately longing for you, because you had become dear to us. Some of us need to look and to see how we act and how we treat those in the church of Christ, those among us, those who are our brothers and sisters. So there's this gentleness that Paul has, relating that to a mother and her children, that's seeking to preach the gospel. This is what he's talking about next. For you remember, brethren, so he's bringing this back home to them, our labor and toil for laboring night and day. What was Paul's, what was Paul's avocation? He was a tent maker. So he didn't go anywhere and live off this. this. Is what he's talking about. He's talking about their toil, our labor and toil. He was making tents. He was paying his own way, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. So he's seeking to preach the gospel. He's seeking this gentleness that arises and is compared to a mother and her children. His labor and toil, no financial burden to the church. No financial burden. He labored and he toiled. You are witnesses. And God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves who believe. They behaved themselves. They set an example. They always kept the best interests of the church in mind at all times. Inside the church, outside the church, anywhere they went. He labored. He toiled. He accepted no financial burden. He was always an example. He behaved himself. He did not act like one thing in one person inside the church and somebody else outside the doors when he's out in the world. He had the church's best interests always in mind. God and the church at Thessalonica were witness to, witness to this, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, we exhorted, we comforted, we charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So the mother gets her due in the beginning when she is raising the children with this gentleness as a mother nurses her newborn infant. But now the fathers come into view here. They exhort, they comfort, they charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Fathers exhort. Fathers discipline. Fathers correct bad behavior. They comfort. They comfort physically. They comfort a child spiritually. They comfort their children. They exhort them. They comfort them. And they charge every one of them as a father does his own children. What do they charge them with? What is the charge that a father gives to his own children? Verse 12. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Fathers, 
you must always have Christ's best interest in your children's upbringing. You must always have the best interest of the church and of, and of Christ in your raising of your children. Paul's love for this church, his prayers for this church, his prayers that this is the word of God that he's preaching and not the word of men. For this reason, verse 13. It's a very important verse. And I would say probably in the book of 1 Thessalonians, this is probably the key verse. For this reason, all of the things that we've talked about since the beginning of this class, all of these things that we've talked about, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth... The Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. If this is not, if this verse is not the best verse on verbal inspiration of the gospel, of the, of the book, of the Bible, if this is not the best verse substantiating the verbal inspiration of the Bible, I don't know of one that's better. It's preached, it's received as the word of God, not the word of men, and these people welcomed it in that way. They welcomed it not as the word of man, not as the word of Paul, not as the word of Silas or Timothy, but they, they received it as the word of God, which it is in truth, that word from God, which effectively works in you who believe. God's word dwells in our hearts through faith. The Holy Spirit, likewise, dwells in our hearts through faith, not apart from the Word, but it is a gift of God. And it is a gift that we should embrace. It's a gift that we should cherish. It's a gift that we use as it effectively works in us as we believe. For you, brethren, became imitators. What's an imitator? A what? A pretender. I don't know if an imitator is, an imitator is, um, would it be a pretender? Would an imitator be someone who tries to model themselves like someone else? So we're to be imitators of who? Christ? We're to be imitators of Christ? That's a, that seems to me to be a pretty tall order. I don't know about you. Is that a tall order? To be an imitator of Christ? I'm sorry? Yeah, it, that, is, that is so true in all things. I mean, I see a recipe online, and I want to make that recipe because that picture looks really good, and I want to be, I want to imitate that recipe. I want to pull that recipe down, and I want my wife to say, oh, Phil, that was so good. That was so tasty. That was good. It, never looks the, it never looks the same. I made, the, I made something the other night. I looked at the recipe online picture, and I looked at that, and I went, those are not imitate. That's not an imitation. of the, that, That's a, uh, that's, that's, but it was edible, so I, I added. Imitators of Christ. It's a tall order. Because he was all the things that we, for the most part, aren't. What are some of the things that we find it hard to do when we try to imitate Christ. Christ was what? He was perfect. 
never sinned, I won't make it through the day. I can't touch the hem of the garment. And so if you fail at one, you're not an imitator. That's where grace comes in. Not cheap grace, but that's where grace comes in. Because we're not saved based on the perfection of Christ. We're saved on trying to imitate him every day, doing the best that we can, and praying and asking forgiveness. Is that the first bell or second? Because I got in trouble last week. I preached it. I taught through the second bell, and people got started to get up and leaving. I didn't know what was going on. So for you, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. So at this period in time, the churches in Judea were the exemplary churches. They were the first ones that were established. And so now Paul is saying, hey, you guys look just like the churches in Judea, which is a great compliment. You became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen. They suffered persecution. The church was the church. The church was split. The church in Judea was they, these people were scattered, and they went everywhere. Now, just as they did, you were suffer, You suffered the same things from your own countrymen. The Thessalonians that didn't like this establishment of this church gave this church problems, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus. So now he's going to go off on this. He's he's going to go off on this this diatribe now uh, about the Jewish the Jewish folks, and he's going to lay into them because they killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and they persecuted us, Acts 16, Philippi, and other places. They persecuted us, and they do not please God, but who do they want to please? They want to please men. That's what he says right there. He says, they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So here are the Jews sticking their nose into Christianity and saying, okay, you can become a Christian. Oh, but you'll have to to become a Jew to be a Christian. Well, Paul says, no, you don't. Christians are separate. They're separate from the Jews now. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. The cup of wrath that God is going to bring upon the Jewish nation is not full yet. This is only 53 53 A.D., 70 A.D. is coming when Rome takes Jerusalem and burns it to the ground. They run, out of, they run out of wood because they're crucifying so many people. 70 A.D. is the end of the Jewish nation as we know it from the Old Testament time forward. The remnant that exists today is the remnant. One, 1.2 million, by some estimates, Josephus, 1.2 million, Christi- uh, 1.2 million people, not Christians, 1.2 million people were, were killed in, uh, Jews were killed in the taking of Jerusalem. The cup, of, the cup is not full yet. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Their, the cup of God's wrath is not full yet. It will become full in 70 A.D. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So there's two instances of wrath here. There's wrath that's coming in 70 A.D. to destroy the Jewish nation, and there's wrath that's to come, which is what? Final judgment. The second coming. And that's what he's going to spend the majority of the rest of Thessalonians talking about. And in the second Thessalonians where he's talking about there is a misconception among these people when the Lord said he was going to return. They thought it was going to be, they thought it was going to be in their lifetime. And he said people are dying and they're going to sleep and Jesus hasn't returned. 
Well, 2,000 plus years later, Jesus still has not returned, albeit those folks who say he returned in 70 A.D., and that's not right either. So God has not returned yet, but the cup of his wrath is, is full. The gospel truth that he was preaching to them that got him in so much trouble and got him persecuted was the thing that was going to set you will well, I just lost the scripture. It was in front of my head and it just went away. Um, I want to say you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But what did Paul say about faith? Um, ah, I can't think of it. I'll, I'll, I'll come up with it. I'll talk about it next week. So there's the day of wrath that's coming in AD 70. And there's a day of wrath that's coming with the final judgment. Faith cometh by hearing. Thank you. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? Word of God. Not by man's words. By the word of God. Okay. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll, brief, I'll briefly touch on. I'll briefly touch on the last couple verses next week. Uh, just the whole thing about Satan hindering. Uh, when you read that uh, in verse 18, therefore we wanted to come to you, even Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. That's a very interesting statement. Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Look at that for next week. We'll talk about that for about five minutes, and then we'll still be in chapter three. So we'll get, to, we'll get to chapter 3. I just have a few closing remarks about that. But that hindered, uh, Satan hindered us is, uh, is interesting. We'll talk about that next week. Thank you for being here.